Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. This week's episode is a talk from Douglas Wilson entitled, The Hand of the Lord Upon Us, from the conference, God Struck America. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Let's pray and praise our God together. Father, no one can reach up, stay your hand, and demand to know what you are doing. Your judgments are right, holy, inscrutable, and altogether kind. We know from your word that your intent is to save the human race from the depths of its depravity, and yet we still do not like to be reminded of how deep that depravity goes. You touch the mountains and they smoke. You speak the word and the oceans are thrown into tumult. You nod and the nations are thrown into uproar. Father God, we bow before you. We humble ourselves in your presence. We know that unless you give a way of access, we are forever excluded from your presence. We thank and praise you for making that way of access through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And through your mighty acts, we ask you to make us aware of how great a blessing this really is. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, and amen. The word of God is a hammer, Jeremiah says that breaks a rock in pieces. It is not a flattering caress. The scripture is no Judas kiss. The textures of God's revelation to sinful man are not smooth and silken vanities. Isaiah the prophet spoke to the proud and arrogant of his day and used the figure of a collapsing wall or tower. He prophesied a time of great slaughter and a day when towers fall. In Isaiah 30, verse 25, he said that judgment, when it comes, comes suddenly, and the only warning was an ominous bulge in a high wall. And after the calamity, he said, the pieces are tiny and useless. But of interest to us is the reason for this judgment. These were children who would not hear the law of God, it says in verse 9. They did not want the seers to see, in verse 10. They rejected honest prophecy and said, speak to us smooth things. Tell us some more lies. Get the Holy One of Israel out of our sight. And so the Holy One of Israel responded with terrible judgment. Paul spoke of the same problem, and this horrible sin surrounds us today on every side. Christians today will not endure sound doctrine, but instead heap up teachers for themselves. In times like these, the true people of God will be distinguished by this one thing. They will want the word of God entire, all of it, with nothing sandpapered or varnished to suit us. This reminds us, of course, of our need to confess our sins. In Ephesians 1, verses 4 and verse 7, it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Let's pray and confess our sins together. Father, in this time of national trial, our confession is a simple one. We have sought out teachers to our own liking. We have insisted that our leaders in the church prophesy smooth words to us. We have heaped up teachers for ourselves in order to tickle our ears, our fancies, and all of our doctrinal conceits. You have interrupted us and have done so with a severe judgment. And so we pray that you would bestow upon us a spirit of humility, 
in the aftermath of the disaster, we as a people have still not forsaken our idols. Pour out your spirit upon your church, we pray, and withhold your rod. We confess the sin to you and ask you to make us courageous so that we might stand by our repentance. Father God, we ask that you would make manifest to us anything that we need to confess to you individually now. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In Ephesians 1, it also says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. It is important for us to say these words. It is important that we also not mouth them. The Christian life is one of ongoing repentance, and the events of the last week show us that this is a lesson that we must learn, and learn far more deeply than we have done thus far. But God is kind to his people. He remembers our frame. We have cried out to him, and he is always good to his everlasting word. You are heard. You are welcome. So come into his courts with praise. Please turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, I want to begin reading at the first verse. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen, upon whom the tower in Siloam fell, and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Let's pray. Father, your ways are inscrutable to us. We like to think that we are quick studies when in fact we are exceedingly slow. We ought to be teachers by now, and yet we find ourselves having to go over the fundamentals again and again. We, your people, have not yet shaken loose of idolatry, and you continue your chastisements. Open our eyes, we pray. We want to learn from your scriptures and not from the rod. But if the rod is necessary to drive your church back to the scriptures, then we pray that you would continue to apply the rod. Father, our Bibles are open before us in our laps. Open our hearts also. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. As is obvious, the events of the last week have left us all reeling. We respond to it in different ways. Emotional response are different. Verbal responses differ one from another in terms of how it's expressed. But for every faithful Christian, the content of the response needs to be the same. And as we seek to understand what that response should be, our first assumption, our first instinct, our first reaction must be to turn to the Word of God. If we see with biblical eyes, we should understand how God will topple every idol and not just the other guys. God will topple every idol and not just the idols on the other side of the world. God will topple every idol in our hearts, in our nation, in our hemisphere, and in this world. 
It doesn't matter if, the, if they are the idols of Islam or the complacent materialistic idols of the West. In the aftermath of this devastating event, a number of surviving idols have their shills filling up the airwaves with various forms of drunken analysis. Christians have contributed to this drunken analysis. This is what it looks like when a people drink from the cup of God's wrath. Throughout scripture, God frequently speaks of striking the pundits and the seers and the prophets of an idolatrous and wicked people with this kind of judicial blindness, with this kind of stupor. There are certain things about this whole event that are screamingly obvious, and yet virtually no one is willing to say them in public. As I prepare, as I have been preparing to say such things to the best of my ability, I have to confess at the outset that there are some things in this that I don't want to say. There are some things here that it would be better, according to carnal wisdom, to, to leave unsaid. And I hope that you will pray for me so that I will say everything that God would, would have me say here and that it would be with the appropriate anger, the appropriate vehemence, and the appropriate sense of, uh, a sense of God's holiness. God is not mocked. In, Gal in Galatians 6, God is not mocked, we are told. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Americans think that this has somehow been exempted in our case. We are somehow different because we have a pluralistic nation, and it doesn't matter what you sow. You can plow the field, and you can go out there and sow whatever you want, grain, thistles, barley, whatever you want, and it's all going to come up the same, American democracy. No, that's a lie. We have bought into the lie. We have embraced a lie, and we have mocked God. And because we have mocked God, we need to repent of mocking God. But in the aftermath of this horrible event, which needs to be understood in its own right, we have to, we, we have to recognize that we as a people have not responded the way the Bible requires us to respond. So I want to begin with some first principles. In Amos chapter 3, we are taught, when disaster befalls a city, has not the Lord done it. When disaster befalls a city, God is the one who is wielding the rod. When an earthquake happens, when a hurricane happens, when an act of war happens, these things are from the hand of God. This does not mean when God uses human instruments that those instruments are not evil men. We see this throughout the Old Testament. God consistently uses evil men to accomplish his righteous purpose. Our God draws straight with crooked lines. So when we say this is a judgment of God and we must humble ourselves, and that's what it is, it is a judgment from God, and we must humble ourselves, this is not taken, it should not be taken as in any way, shape, or form, approval of the madmen who perpetrated this. These men are madmen, and we're not approving of them, we're not approving of their idolatry. What we're saying is that God can use idolaters to judge idolaters. And God consistently throughout his word uses idolaters to judge other idolaters. And we say, well, it's not fair. Why couldn't he use our idolatry to judge their idolatry? Well, perhaps at some future date, he will do so. He is the Lord. But right now, we have to face up to what he has done to us. 
When disaster befalls a city, the Lord is the one who has done it. Shall we adopt the theology of the foolish women that Job speaks of? Job talked about those women who thought that we, we ought to just receive all the good things from God. Our God is the God of baskets of kittens, and our God is the God of pussy willows, and our God is the God of flowers, and our God is the God of nice things and sweet things. That's the God I worship, people say. Well, if that's the God you worship, and if that's all he does, then you're worshiping an idol. We cannot refuse to acknowledge God's judgments. Job 2.10. Job says, we don't want to adopt that in theology, which incidentally is the theology of the modern evangelical church. The modern evangelical church has adopted formally, systematically, the theology of Job's foolish women. Our starting point in all of this is to understand that this judgment has to be acknowledged by us as the work of the God of heaven. If we do not acknowledge this at the start, if we do not see that God is in this because God is in everything, God dispensed this because God dispenses everything, if we don't see this, then everything we say downstream from that will blur into humanistic nonsense. And if you doubt what I say, I want you to consider what the true horror of this last week was. What was the worst event of this last week? It was not the collapse of the World Trade Towers. It was not the bombing of the Pentagon. The worst event of this last week happened in Washington, D.C., when a polytheistic worship service was organized in the National Cathedral, and it was presided over by a lady bishop. It was this polytheistic worship service invoked the God of the Muslims and the Hindus and the Buddhists and who knows what else. And the leading evangelical spokesman was there and lent his approval, gave his approval to this. That was the worst thing that happened this last week. God struck at our idols. And what did we do? We turned to our idols. We turned the National Cathedral into a pantheon. In the, old, in the, uh, in the New Testament era, in this, right after the, the time of the New Testament, one of the early responses of Rome to the worship of, the, the worship of Christians, the monotheistic worship of Christians, was the offer by the emperor to take a statue of Jesus Christ and put it in the pantheon. Pantheon means all the gods. All the gods were there. An ecumenical uh, jamboree. Let's, we'll, put a picture, we'll put a statue of Jesus Christ up along all the other gods. The early Christians were persecuted not because they worshipped Jesus Christ. The Romans couldn't have cared less whether you worshipped Jesus Christ. What they insisted upon, however, was that for the good of the society, for the good of the people, you must acknowledge the other gods. And the early Christians refused to acknowledge the other gods. That's what got the Christians in trouble. They refused to pray. They refused to burn incense to Caesar. They refused to acknowledge his genius. They refused to honor divine honors to Caesar. They refused to bow down to the other idols. The early Christians were persecuted, not because they worshiped Jesus Christ, but because they refused divine honors to anyone other than Jesus Christ, because we come to God the Father through Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you're Christians, then you believe that. If you don't believe it, you may be a professing Christian, you may be a covenant member, you may be baptized, but you're defying God. You're in rebellion against God. At this service, Dr. Billy Graham said, 
that it's all right to be angry with God. He said that it's all right to be angry with God. Well, if it's all right to be angry with God, I have a question that all of us need to confront. If it's all right with us to be angry with God, do you think it is perhaps permissible for God to be angry with us? Perhaps, perhaps that's what's going on. Oh, no, no, that couldn't be. That couldn't be. We're inherently good. We're, we're pure. We're clean. We're, this is a battle, people have said, between good and evil. Yes, this is a battle between good and evil, but the lines aren't drawn where you think they're drawn. This is a battle between good and evil, but the seed of the woman are the good and the seed of the serpent are those who are evil. And there is plenty of evil in our physical adversaries. There is plenty of evil there, but we have to understand that there is evil with us. There is evil with us and God has brought it under judgment. And the leading evangelical spokesman had this opportunity to speak to four presidents. He had the, the opportunity to speak to a grieving nation, and he had the opportunity to present something other than his watered-down gospel. He had the opportunity to say, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Do you think that the people who fell in the tower are any worse than you all in this cathedral? Do you think that the people who died in the Pentagon were any worse than the other people who escaped with their lives? Do you think that? If you think that, then you are a fool. But that's not what he said. He said, it's all right to be angry with God. And I want you to put out of your minds the prospect that God might be angry with you. The gospel is that which delivers us from the wrath that is to come. The gospel delivers us from God's anger with us. And we have so warped and twisted the gospel in our pop evangelical way, we have said that the central thing we have to realize is how can we get sinners to accept God? We don't, we don't care how sinners want to accept God or not. Sinners want to accept God sinfully. If they didn't want to accept him sinfully, they wouldn't be sinners. The real issue and the problem that the New Testament solves is how can we get God to accept sinners? Not how can we get sinners to stop being angry with God. How can we get God to stop being angry with sinners? And that is answered by the cross of Jesus Christ. The answer to that question is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we are corrupt. Our spokesmen are corrupt. Our prophets are corrupt. Our Christian radio stations are corrupt. Our worship services are corrupt. We are the problem. We are the ones who have the Bible. We should know better. We should be able to read our Bibles. We should be able to tell the people who are bewildered out there what's going on. But no, we are as muddled and as drunk as the rest of them. Now let's consider some of the judgments of God in this. Our God is truly God, and he is never God at a distance. Our God acts in this world, and when he does so, he brings glory to himself. And this horror is no exception. In what ways are we in his hands as we consider these things, as we consider these events? First, I want to consider the perpetrators. These terrorist idolaters were fully convinced, according to the dictates of their false and damnable religion, that they were doing the will of Allah. 
They fully believed that they would pass through the fireball of the explosion, and they did what they did when they did it. They, they wanted a cross-continental flight so that the fuel tanks would be full, full, so that there would be a great explosion. They wanted a full airplane so that it would be a great big bomb, so that it would be a great big fireball. They believed that they were going to pass through the fireball of the explosion and would enter immediately into their storybook paradise. They believed that they were going to a place where huris, uh, young women, voluptuous young women, are going to feed them grapes forever and ever. But to their everlasting horror, the fireball did not diminish or disappear. They entered into calamitous judgment. They are now where the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched, and will not be quenched forever and ever. We, in our humanistic nonsense, are calling for justice for the perpetrators. Perhaps we're thinking justice for the remaining perpetrators, those who remain alive, those who gave the orders. But we have to understand that the immediate perpetrators have already entered into justice and nothing but justice. We don't need to cry out for justice because God is in his heaven. God rules rightly. The judge of the whole earth is going to do right. These men have already entered into judgment. We have to think also, we have to assume also that we have the responsibility to think of the destiny of the unready slain. And this is, this is what's going to reveal to us whether we think like Christians or not. We are misplacing the antithesis if we think of us, them. The bad guys are over there and the good guys are over here. And if you, uh, we say, oh, it's, it's so silly. It's, it's so silly for them to think that if, if you die in a jihad, if you die in a holy war, then you're automatically a martyr. And if you, a suicide bomber is a martyr and he goes instantly, automatically to paradise. A free ticket to paradise. Well, we do the same thing. Same identical thing. The American free ticket to paradise, the free ticket to heaven, the one that gets everyone absolved, is if you are killed as a result of a terrorist attack. In other words, we have our own little passive jihad. Everybody is declared a believer in God. Everyone's declared a nice guy. We embrace our Pelagian assumptions about the goodness of every man. And we say, well, everyone is all automatically all right. They're all automatically okay. This is not true. The slain, we have to consider in two categories. In times like this, it's perilously easy to misplace the antithesis, thinking too simplistically that this is a simple matter of a battle between good and evil. It is the result of a battle between good and evil, but the lines are not defined by national identity. If you've seen the footage, and I doubt that there's any here who haven't, if you've seen the footage, you watched thousands of people in a matter of seconds go to meet God the overwhelming majority of whom were not the least bit ready. How many people there in that tower were, were planning their adulteries for that night? How many people in that building had pornography on their computers? How many people in that building were backstabbing and having little office malicious catfights with one another? How many people were living as though God did not exist? How many people said that we're in this Tall tower. We are the pride of life. We are, we are really something. We're at the top of the world. Most of these people were not ready to meet God, and yet they did. One of the things we have to recognize about this and war and every other form of calamity is that it never increases the death rate. All of us die. 
One death per person, one each. Everyone dies. It sort of makes us focus. It makes us pay attention when we see a number of people die all at once. But what we're being forced to do is pay attention to something that happens constantly all the time. And we have to recognize that the death toll, we don't know what the death toll in this situation is, but it looks to be four to 5,000 somewhere in there. The death toll in America by abortionists, protected by our court system, protected by our Supreme Court, is a little less than that, 3,500 a day. Nobody cares. Nobody thinks about it. No candlelight vigils for them because they're being, uh, uh, you know, we have to, you know, you can't attack us, we say. We're a force for good in the world. They're attacking us because we're a force for good in the world. We've got to make the world safe for stem cell research. We've got to make the world safe for abortionists. We are the good guys. You see, it's very good that we chop little babies up into pieces. It's good that we burn them to death in the womb. We're the good guys. We are twisted and perverse. But we must not forget the words of comfort that that the Scripture provides for us here as well. In the second category, we can find true comfort. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.8. This is true for those who are friends of God, those who have believed on believed in God and come to him through Jesus Christ. Many brothers and sisters were caught in this crossfire, and the fury of Islamic unbelief simply sent them into glory more quickly than they thought they were going to go. They thought that they were going to have another day shuffling paper, paper, bureaucratic paperwork at the Pentagon, and they began the day doing that, and they ended the day in the presence of God. There is salvation in this twisted world. There is salvation in this wretched place, and that salvation is through Jesus Christ, and only through Jesus Christ. This is what Christians believe. Christians don't believe that you can throw it all in the pot and let's, let's just call it all good. Christians are not polytheists. American Christians have drifted into polytheism. Evangelicals have drifted into polytheism, but they've abandoned their confessional and historic heritage because the Christian faith says that there's one God, the triune God of Scripture, and we come to know God the Father through Jesus Christ. And there were no doubt many believers, many brothers and sisters who went to be with the Lord this last Tuesday. We are not without God. We are not without hope in the world. They now live in a world without weeping, without terror, without loss, and without death. But then there are those of us remaining. What lessons do we learn from this? And this is where our text should be considered. Those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwell in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. These words, were, these words were spoken with the judgment on Jerusalem a generation later in view. Jesus says in Matthew 24, this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. Speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD. These words were spoken probably in the late 20s AD. And Jesus said, Unless you repent, what happened here is going to happen to everyone. What happened to these 18 is going to happen to the whole city. 
We are invited by God. God gives covenant blessings and covenant curses. And we don't speak as prophets. We don't speak with any claim to infallibility. But what we do have to understand is when God promises covenant blessings and curses, we are commanded, required by the word of God to figure out what he's doing. We're commanded to respond to what he's doing and say, you know, this blessing is for obedience and this curse is for disobedience. Jerusalem was leveled within a generation. Jesus spoke these words, 18 now. I want you to draw a lesson. I want you to think about this. I want you to repent of what you're doing. I don't want you to repent because you've examined the tea leaves. I don't want you to repent because you went to your horoscope. I want you to repent because you've this shook you up and it turned you back to the scriptures. And you read in the scriptures that there are certain things that the followers of God are not to do. And so you repent of doing them. So we have to recall the text, and we're going to come back to this in a few moments and consider some of the things that we must do. I want to address the president of the United States, and it might seem odd to address a man who's not present with us. But until the pulpits of our nation start hammering away at these things so that he comes to hear them, and so that he can't escape hearing them, so that he can't stop hearing them, then repentance is still far from us. John Knox used to get in trouble with Mary, Queen of Scots, because he would preach a sermon and someone would go tell the queen what he had just said. And then he'd be summoned to give an account of himself for the sermon to the queen. Well, that needs to start happening. We need to start having ministers who are summoned to little interviews with the FBI. And would you would you please explain what you were saying here? And we heard heard this report and we heard that report and we heard the other report. We need to start giving an account of ourselves and we need to start rocking the boat in such a way that it cannot be ignored. And we have to stop whining about how we don't control the national media. This is God's media. The pulpit is God's media. That is what God wants us to use. God wants us to declare his word to an unbelieving declare his word to an unbelieving world and he wants it done in power and with authority so that it cannot be ignored. It still might seem odd that here we are in North Idaho and we're just saying these things and it's going to make us feel good and that's all that there is to it. But no, I believe that God uses the pulpit to speak his word to those who need to hear it. First, Mr. President, humble yourself away from the cameras. Humble yourself away from the cameras. Imitate the king in the Old Testament who had sackcloth underneath his clothing. He didn't wear it on the outside as a photo op. He didn't wear it on the outside in order to be thought to be humble. And he was not a godly man. He was not a godly king as the surrounding context makes clear. But it was good that he was humbling himself beneath his clothing. Understanding perhaps had begun to glimmer in his mind. Even the wicked king Ahab was heard by God for this response. So, Mr. President, humble yourself when you're by yourself in a room with you and God, and there's no one there watching. There's no political spin. There's no political advantage. What you are in that room alone with God, that you are and nothing else. So humble yourself away from your handlers. Humble yourself away from the photographers. Humble yourself away from the journalists. Secondly, Mr. President, meditate on the poetic justice. These terrorists were bloodthirsty and wicked men. But they would have to fly many more jetliners into many more skyscrapers in order to catch up with us. 
In the murder game, we are still millions of souls ahead of them. They are choir boys compared to us. They are wicked. Every name you've heard them called over the course of the last week, that's what they are. Are they lunatics? Yeah, lunatics. They're lunatics. Are they madmen? Yes, they're madmen. Are they bloodthirsty murderers? Yes, they are. And they're choir boys compared to us. We stink compared to them. We are an evil, wicked people. And when we are told that this is a battle between good and evil, we obviously do not have a clue. In the murder game, we are still millions of souls ahead of them. It seems that pro-choice Arabs, people who want to exercise their right to choose, it's my personal choice whether I want to fly a jetliner into a skyscraper. That's my personal choice. What's it to you? We say, but, but, but you're killing another person. I see, and an abortion we're not? What are you thinking? What are you talking about? By what standard do you make these judgments? If we have the authority to say the bits of protoplasm in the womb are nothing but bits of protoplasm, if we have the authority to say that, then they have the authority to say that we're the great Satan, and the more skyscrapers that come down, the better. If we have that authority, they have that authority. And we, by our impudent and arrogant behavior, have given them the permission to do this. We invited them. We said that there is no standard above us. There is no standard to which we must submit and you must submit. You do what pleases you, and we will do what pleases us. And we are under the judgment of God. This is not something in every human society, in every collection of sinners, every time you get people together, there, there will be people who commit murder and do things that they ought not to do. But God in Romans 13 has given the sword to the magistrate to punish the wrongdoer and to reward. He has told the magistrate to reward the righteous. And we've reversed that. We have nine black robed Supreme Court justices who... And, and there are some good men among them. There are some people who are maintaining the right. But those nine black-robed Supreme Court justices are well on their way to becoming the nine black riders. They've got black robes. The majority of them have black robes. And if you look at the cuff of their sleeve, the hands beneath the robe are blood red, and the blood is bright red because it's fresh and it's dripping on the floor. And Congress and the president and the local magistrates and, and the church all acquiesce in this. And they say, that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. And then, but if you do it to us, that's not okay. This is sheer arbitrary humanism. By what standard do we make these pronouncements? We don't have justices in our land. We have ghouls. And then we object when God visits judgment upon our ghoulish nation. Mr. President, repent of your platitudes. As he said in his speech, the, the, immediately after the events, he said that the foundations of America were strong. You can totter the foundations of the buildings, but you can't touch the foundations of our nation. But the foundation, that's a lie. The foundations of America are not strong. They look imposing, just like the skyscrapers did. They look imposing just like the Soviet Union did before it came down. It was a pretty big monolithic nation. Can't touch it. Nothing can happen. And it came down just like the World Trade Centers came down. The foundations look imposing. They look great. But when the foundations are destroyed and they are rotten through, as ours are, what can the righteous do? It asks in Psalm 11, verse 3. What can the righteous do? 
They can know this, that God is on his throne. God is in his temple. The Holy One of Israel rules over all. Mr. President, you must learn that the Lord is in his holy temple. The foundations of America are rotten. The foundations of America are under judgment. Now, this is where we have to, there, there's wisdom required here. I believe for various reasons, and this, is, this becomes an immediate practical problem for us. I'm sure that there are people here who are in the reserves who may be called up. The president has called up 50,000 reserves thus far, and the indications are that that's just a start. It looks like we're in for a long haul. It looks like we're in for war. A number of the young men here are of draft age. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond to this? This creates a whole host of practical questions. And this is something the church is going to have to study and examine and look, turn to the Bible for guidance and direction. But I want to give just a, a preliminary thought as we respond to the president in this. I believe in Romans 13, if justice is rained down upon Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever it may happen, I believe that Romans 13 not only permits that, but requires it. Just God, remember, God draws straight with crooked lines. He drew straight on us with their crooked line, and he can do the same thing to them with us. God draws straight with crooked lines. I don't believe it's inherently unlawful for Christians in the military today to participate in a retaliation against these terrorists. I don't believe it's inherently unlawful for Christians to be involved in this. But I do think that Christians have to say something fundamental to our civil magistrates. You have authority from God to judge these wicked men. You have no authority from God to lie to us about it. Stop lying. Mr. President, stop lying. Stop saying America is good when we are wicked. Stop saying we're strong when we're weak. Stop invoking the, these polytheistic gods. Quit, quit burning incense at every altar. And you, and you might say, well, I'm, I'm not a theologian. I'm just an average guy, and Billy Graham's doing it. And we say, never mind what Billy Graham does. What does the Word of God say? What does Scripture require? Stop worshiping idols. Stop lying to us about these idols. Stop speaking us, uh, to us in the name of these idols. Stop. Repent. I believe that Christians can be involved in the retaliation, but they have to do it saying clearly and loudly to everyone who asks them, presenting this clear testimony. We got, last Tuesday, better than we deserve. Our judgment was great, but our sins were greater. And our response to this judgment indicated that we were inviting more. What are we saying when God does this horrific thing? And the first national response, the first religious national response is a polytheistic worship service in the national pantheon. What are we saying? We are saying President Bush, the Muslim, the Hindu, the Buddhist, all of them, the Lady Bishop, all of them said, God, it's going to take more than that to humble us. We, we want you to go over it again. We've got other cities. Why don't you go over it again? We've got lots of people. Why don't you kill some more? Maybe then we'll get it. Maybe then we'll pay attention. No, let's go burn incense to all the gods. Uh, we're under divine protection, all right. We prayed to all of them. We didn't leave anybody out. I'm sure if there was a god for lesbian Eskimos, that was invoked too. 
Because we say that our constitution, our First Amendment, all we, we've got the way. We are a bunch of arrogant, conceited, stuck-up, proud people who deserve to be smacked a lot harder than we've been smacked. What is the response of the saints? This is important for us to grasp, this next point. There are many conservative individualists in the Christian church, particularly in the Reformed community, who might want to opt out of all this. They might want to say, you know, I've been opposing abortion since 1970, uh, mid-1970s. I've been fighting the good fight. I've been saying all these things. I've, I've been disgusted and dismayed with what has been going on politically. I've been, I, I opted out a long time ago. I'm not part of this. Count me out. I'm afraid that that's not possible. If you think covenantally and not individualistically, if you stop thinking like uh, 19th, early 19th century revivalist, you have to recognize that God treats us together covenantally. There's a civil covenant that we are part of. To illustrate, in an ethnic war, and this is partially what this is, this is not entirely that way, but it, it has a strong ethnic component to it. In an ethnic war, you don't have to choose up sides. The other side does that for you. You don't have to say, well, you know, I'm, we are so individualistic. We think that because I'm here in the middle of North America thinking certain sentences in my head because I've got certain ideological commitments that somehow that I get a free pass. I, I get to stand, go over on the sidelines and watch all this and say, man, it's a tough thing that's happening to all you Americans over there because I, I opted out of this because I disagree. It's, this is, reminds me of the bumper sticker, don't blame me, I voted for so-and-so. As though every election is not a national judgment, a national chastisement, as though, as though God is not dealing with this corporately and covenantally. He is. If you were on one of those planes, and any number of you easily could have been, right, if you were on any of those planes, none of these terrorists would have taken a poll before they, flew to, before they went anywhere. Did anybody here vote for a third-party candidate? We'd like to let you get off. Anybody here disagree with abortion? We want to let you off. God is judging us all. He's not judging the people who are wrong. He's judging us all. Because we as a people are wrong as a people. And the people who are right and have kept themselves personally clean from these things recognize this and understand the importance of covenantal corporate confession. We are part of this, like it or not. Under the providence of God, all of us, everyone in this room, under the providence of God, not according to the dictates of these terrorists, but under the providence of God, all of us are on a particular side of a particular earthly conflict. The fact that we are on a side, the fact that the side that we're on cannot honestly seek a blessing from God, from the God of battles, should make us desperate for reformation in the church. Here's the thing. I said that it was lawful for us to be involved in an expedition of, uh, against Afghanistan. But if you think that God could not humble us on the other side of the world, as well as here, you're crazy. And so Christians who are involved in this have to understand that they can't go, go out marching, wag, waving red, white, and blue flags saying, we are America, I'm proud to be an American, singing stupid songs instead of singing psalms, instead of singing what God gave us to sing in times like this, if we think that we can just go, we're the, one, the world's remaining superpower, 
And, and we can go spank Afghanistan. Well, the last time Afghanistan was at war, it was with the other world's superpower, the Soviet Union. And they humbled them. If you think that God cannot use a humble, little, poverty-ridden people to humble a superpower, then you've forgotten the previous war in Afghanistan, and you've forgotten what happened in Vietnam. God is not limited by our categories. And so, while it's lawful for Christians to be involved in this, Christians have to recognize that if we continue to evoke, invoke, and pray to our polytheistic deities, we are inviting God's judgment. It may not happen. It may be successful, considered from an earthly vantage point, but it may not be. And we cannot presume upon God's action. Something else that has to be said here, it is... Um, in Isaiah 29, I referred to Isaiah 30 earlier, where it says, it says that God will bring this judgment on a high wall, on a high tower, and, and, and it will be smashed to smithereens, as we would say. And, and the reason for it is because everybody wanted to prophesy smooth things. We need to be rebuked in every direction. The people who think that, it, that country club republicanism is the kingdom of God need to be spanked. They need to be smacked. And people who think that they can opt out of all this and say, you know, I'm not touched by it. I'm, I disagree. I've, I'm an ideologue and I've got a certain commitment to certain thoughts in my head. And therefore, it's sure too bad what's happening to you all. That is not a biblical patriotism. A biblical patriotism does not say my country right or wrong. A biblical patriotism is the first to rebuke wickedness in a loved nation. If you don't love this nation, you are sinning. If you don't weep over her sins and her wickedness, you are sinning. In Isaiah 29.1, the prophet cries out, Ariel, Ariel, the, the beloved city has become corrupt. And the tears that, Isaiah, that, are, that are behind Isaiah's words are tears of a biblical patriot. Jeremiah was a patriot. There was no one who rebuked the sin of his nation more fiercely than Jeremiah did, but he was a patriot. If you're standing off to the side saying, you know, serves you right, serves you right, you guys, that kind of detached individualism is wicked. Love your nation. But you should love your nation enough to rebuke her for her sins. Love your wife the way Hosea loved Gomer, who was unfaithful to him. Love your nation. Your nation is an unfaithful nation. Your nation is a wicked nation. But you have a responsibility to love her. And you have to love her the way Jesus Christ loved Jerusalem and wept over Jerusalem. Jesus spoke these words about the Tower of Siloam. But then when he saw Jerusalem, what did Jesus do? He wept. He wept over the city that he was going to destroy a generation later. But he wept. People who rush to judgment, people who, who glory in judgment, people who have a certain glee in being right and seeing things smashed, that is sin and must be put away. We cannot opt out of this. We cannot exempt ourselves out of it. You can't say, well, I'm not here. I wasn't present. You are. God put you here, and God's got you involved in this. And we have to respond biblically. We have to insist upon it as we, as we look for ways to respond. There are several things that we have to do. First, honor God. We are a people who do not want to honor God as God, as it says in Romans 1, and we do not want to give him thanks. God's response to this impudence is wrath. 
But wrath is turned away from repentant nations. Wrath can be averted. Wrath can be averted if we preach the cross of Jesus Christ, which was a propitiation, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is the turning aside of wrath. And so we have to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it alone is that which will avert wrath. It alone is that which will turn wrath aside. So we have to repent. Secondly, we as evangelicals have to put away our idols. I'm speaking as someone who's brought up as an evangelical. I'm an evangelical now, and I'm going to die an evangelical, and I hope that my great-grandchildren are evangelical Christians, embracing the full historic orthodoxy of Scripture. I'm saying this as an evangelical. But evangelicalism is shot through with idolatry. In turning away from sin, we will come to see the ways in which we have bowed down to other gods in countless subtle ways, and it's gotten to the point where we have a national worship service that is polytheistic, expressly, overtly polytheistic, and there's no outrage, there's no controversy, except in very limited quarters. In the camp of the saints, we still find materialism, we find lust, greed, false doctrine, and insolent pride. With tears repent, because Billy Graham, when he did what he did, represented us well. He didn't represent us in goodness, he didn't represent us in righteousness, but he was an accurate representation of what the evangelical church in America has become. Evangelicalism, and I want you to understand that this is, I'm not flying off the handle, I've pondered this and meditated on it. We have to understand that evangelicalism is the whore of America. We are the problem. We are not the solution. We drive around with bumper stickers that say that Jesus is the answer. Well, if those sort of bumper stickers are on our, are on our cars, then the world can be forgiven for saying that it must have been a stupid question. If you think that Jesus, if the, if the Jesus you proclaim is the answer, and I look at your life, and I look at your worship, and I look at what you do, and I look at how you respond to events like this, we have to recognize the radical infidelity, the radical adultery, the radical unbelief that has permeated the Christian church. We have to understand in church after church in America today, we are offering up idolatrous worship. And to the extent that it's idolatrous worship, it is goddamned worship. God hates it. God says, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Who told you to come in here and offer up these evil sacrifices? Who told you that I wanted the external form? Who told you that I wanted you to do the things that are right on the outside and then neglect justice and righteousness? What should we do? We should fight with our weapons, the weapons that God has given us. And we have to understand the nature of the fight. The weapons given to us are mighty to pull down strongholds, as it says in 2 Corinthians 10. But unfortunately, we've regarded these weapons as impractical and impotent. We've got to go to Washington to lobby. We have to go do this political thing. We have to go do the other thing. No, why don't we just start with something simple? Why don't we worship like Christians? Why don't we offer up God, worship to God that God requires in his word? Why don't we do on the Lord's Day what God tells us to do? Let's try that. For oh, a little bit. Let's try it for a week or two. And then short attention span Americans will turn away from that and say, oh, we tried it. It didn't work. Too many weeks doing one thing. It was kind of boring. I thought the service was kind of boring. And you sang all these old songs. And I wanted something where I could tap my foot. 
God shall arise and by his might put all his enemies to flight. We have to fight in repentance. But as we, ref- we, we can't fight in, in a carnal reaction, and we can't not fight. We are required to fight, but we have to fight in repentance. The book of Revelation can be understood, and I think should be understood, according to this pattern. The worship of the church is central to the salvation of the world. The worship of the church is central to the reformation of politics. The worship of the church is central to the straightening out of international tangles like this one and evil on the international scale, such as, uh, such as uh, this evil that we're confronting now. John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. This is the Lord's day. This is the day that he has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is God's day. John was in the spirit on that day. And God opened up heaven and took John up into the heavenlies so that he could see there the church worshiping God in a glorious worship service in the heavenlies. And all the disasters that happened on earth were the results were the, were the result of the saints worshiping in heaven. And as we worship here, we are caught up to the heavenly mountain and we worship God there. And we worship God there together with all the saints. And God uses the incense of the prayers of the saints to accomplish his purposes on earth. And it's a good thing that God doesn't give us direct control of these things because we would shrink from a number, a number of things that have to be done. But God, nevertheless, uses the worship of his people to accomplish his purposes on earth. Worship is warfare. Worship is, John wasn't given a box seat in heaven so he could watch all these judgments. The 24 elders worship God and things happen on earth. The church worships, worships God in heaven and things occur. Kingdoms fall. Economies falter. People die. Not because we have carnal weapons, but spiritual weapons. Worship is warfare. Worship is a weapon. Worship is what God has given to us. Too many Christians think that worship is entertainment. And instead of taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, instead of wielding word and sacrament, instead of worshiping God the way God says to worship Him, what they've done is they've gathered to themselves all sorts of little toy implements, and they charge out into the field of battle with a little wooden sword and a garbage can lid, and they say, I'm going to do battle with the forces of evil, and let's sing another chorus another time and make ourselves feel gooey. I think we're gooey enough. I think we're sentimental enough. I think we've been sinning long enough. I think we've been forgetful of our God long enough. We've forgotten the terms of the covenant, and God has given us a glory. God could have had the the whole had us swallowed up the whole nation in an instant, but he didn't. And God gave us an opportunity to reflect, gave us an opportunity to repent. This is the first Lord's Day since this disaster. The first reaction in DC was an idolatrous reaction. The first reaction was an idolatrous reaction. The last thing I want to leave you with is this. Not only should you prepare yourself for the long haul, prepare yourself for a long conflict, prepare yourself for your sons growing up, worshiping God rightly because it matters, and your grandchildren worshiping God rightly because it matters. But you need to understand what you need to do as you talk with others. As you talk with non-believers who don't have any frame of reference for any of this, you need to explain to them that Christianity is monotheistic, not polytheistic. We worship the triune God of Scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and only Him and no others. 
and we are not idolaters, and we will not participate in anything that partakes of that idolatry. That's the fundamental issue. Is the Christian church going to stand apart from the idols of our time? And then the second thing you must do practically, apart from worship, is in your conversation with other brothers and sisters in Christ, well-intentioned, many of them may be, and others of them, I'm afraid, are not well-intentioned. And you have to ask them this test question. What did you think of the National Cathedral worship service this last week? If there are evasions, if there are excuses, if there are explanations, if there's anything other than a grief-stricken statement that this was an abomination, then you have to gently and in all love and tenderness tell your friend that they're a part of the problem. This is why we're being judged. We can't distinguish the true and living God from idols anymore. And we have been saying, and oftentimes Reformed believers have been cowardly or too scholastic in how they've said this, but we've been saying for some time that, you know, these opinions, these doctrines are at at root, they're idolatrous. The, the, the central issue here is whether we're going to enthrone God or man. And that's quite correct. And people said, no, 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 you're, you're logic chopping, you're splitting hairs, and you guys are doctrinal gnat stranglers, and you do all these things all the time. Well, what we need to do is say, look, it's come to this. We are bowing down to other gods in public, and there's no national outrage on the part of the professing Christian church at this. We have become Baal worshipers. We have become Molech worshipers. We have joined in this pandemonium of idolatry and cannot be surprised when God levels his judgment and his chastisement. Pray that God would give a spirit of repentance to his church. Pray for a reformation as though your life and your safety and your livelihood in the land depends upon it, because it does. Let's pray to God together. Father in heaven, Father of mercy, God of all comfort, you are the Lord of forgiveness, and you sent your Son into the world to accomplish and proclaim the way of peace. But we have preferred the injustice of blood, and we have not turned back to your laws, your words, your comfort. Grant repentance to your people, we pray, and we pray in Jesus' name. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the full series, God Struck America, now on the Canon app.